I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Artemis Simopoulos. Dr. Simopoulos is an American physician. She was born in Greece, but she was trained as a doctor in the United States. She specialized in endocrinology and nutrition. She has had various positions over the years. She is the president of the nonprofit educational organization, the Center for Genetics, Nutrition, and Health. She has held posts at the NIH and a number of other places that she describes a little bit in the beginning. She's also the author of several books and a number of papers, mostly to do with different areas of diet, nutrition, and metabolism. And I talked to her about her research and what she knows about human metabolism as it relates to diet and and being metabolically healthy. So we talked a lot about the omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acid ratio. Omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids are two different types of essential dietary fats that we must get from our diet. And we talked about the human history of uh, the consumption of these things. Today, we have a very skewed uh, ratio of omega-6s and omega-3s with way more omega-6s and not as much omega-3s as humans got for most of their evolutionary history. We talked about the, the biochemistry and the biology underlying the different effects they have on our body. We talked about why omega-6s tend to be pro-inflammatory, whereas omega-3s tend to be anti-inflammatory. We talked about things like sucrose and how it affects the brain and the liver and high fructose corn syrup and all of these things. We talked about the difference between the highly processed foods that we mostly eat today in the West, things that have a lot of omega-6 fatty acids, things like sucrose and sucrose derivatives, how those differed from traditional diets and what the relevant biology is there that's uh, important for just healthy living and being metabolically healthy, not becoming obese or diabetic and having chronic inflammation-based diseases. So if you're interested in diet, nutrition, health, and metabolism, this is an excellent episode. I also have a link to uh, her free uh, book, which you can download the the digital version of for free in the episode description. And with that, uh, I want to remind you that I have a Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. You can get all of my podcast and written content there, including a new written series I am posting uh, right now over the next few weeks about metabolic health. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form, and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase.
Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today. And with that, here is my conversation with Dr. Artemis Simopoulos. Very pleased to be with you today. Can you start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what your scientific background is? Yes. Um, I am the president of the Center for Genetics, Nutrition, and Health which is a non-profit educational organization in Washington, D.C. By training, I am a physician who specialized in uh, endocrinology, genetics, and with the emphasis on nutrition. I did my research at the National Institutes of Health, and uh, I actually was the chair of the Nutrition Coordinating Committee at the NIH, which subsequently um, coordinated the activities of all the other agencies within the Department of Health and Human Services, then all the departments of the federal government that had nutrition programs, and eventually it became the Joint Subcommittee for Human Nutrition Research that operated out of the White House. Um, before that, I had um, been in academic medicine and uh, having my boards in pediatrics and neonatology, I was the director of the newborn nursery at the George Washington University Hospital. And I was um, professor in both pediatrics and obstetrics. Subsequent to my NIH training and uh, chairmanship, I have also worked at the National Academy of Sciences. Okay, so you've you've done quite a bit, and we're going to talk a lot about nutrition and, and diet and metabolism stuff today. Um, All right. Can you just start off by just describing for everyone in very sort of general terms? What are some of the key characteristics that distinguish a metabolically healthy person from a metabolically unhealthy person? Well, if uh, to, to begin with, all you have to do, you look at the person. Make sure they are not overweight or obese. A person who is overweight or obese cannot be considered healthy because it carries risk factors that lead to chronic diseases. 
Um, so um, it, there are some obese persons who do not have metabolic changes, but these are very rare. The majority of the persons who have been studied extensively and they are obese, they have risk factors that increase the um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, arthritis, high blood pressure, and some forms of cancer. Um, all these diseases are related and they're characterized by a degree of inflammation that is present throughout the body. So you can think then of chronic diseases are having a common denominator, which is inflammation, or you can think as inflammation as being at the base of all chronic diseases. Mm. And in, in general terms, we'll get into probably some more details later. Is inflammation a consequence of these diseases or is it part of the cause of these diseases? I think it's at the base, whether it is entirely the cause associated with other factors. I think the way to think of it is that inflammation is at the base of all chronic diseases that occur throughout the world, more so in countries where there is more obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And what, for, for those that don't know, I think we all have an intuition for what inflammation is, um, but physiologically at the cellular level, what exactly is inflammation? Yes. Um, it, uh, inflammation is a condition of the cell and eventually the organ that the cells make up, that particular organ, um, it are characterized by higher levels or higher amounts in the cell or the liver or the heart muscle of what we call substances that are called cytokines. And they are very much related, the production of cytokines, to the amounts of the vegetable oils that we have in our diet particularly the omega-6 essential fatty acids and the ratio of the omega-6 essential fatty acids to the omega-3s. And what Western diets are characterized by are high amounts of sunflower oil, safflower, corn oil, cottonseed oil, and soybean oil. These fatty acids are called, uh, the, the amount of omega-6 fatty acids in those oils is extremely high. For example, in um, the case of sunflower, which is very commonly used oil, um, is 77% um, are omega-6. Corn oil is a little bit less, 63 but the high amounts of omega-6 fatty acids that are in our diet, in the body, in the cell, are metabolized to substances that are pro-inflammatory. By that we mean they increase the production of inflammatory substances that, I, as I mentioned earlier, are called cytokines. Mm. And a lot of them are also pro-thrombotic. 
In other words, they make the blood thicker and might lead to strokes. So it's prothrombotic and pro-inflammatory. During evolution, we had equal amounts of essential fatty acids of omega-6 and omega-3 from our diet. But after the Second World War, there has been an enormous production of the oils that are high in omega-6. And so the Western diets are characterized by high amounts of pro-inflammatory metabolites or pro-inflammatory substances that are the result of the metabolism of the omega-6 in the cell, whereas omega-3s are the acids that are found, for example, in flaxseed or in fish and fish oils. They are anti-inflammatory and anti-thrombotic. That's why you need to have them in equal amounts the way we had them during evolution. Today, this ratio, it varies enormously, anywhere from 10 to 15 to 20 to 1. That mm. is not consistent with health. Mm. So, yeah, one of the things I wanted to talk about here is you know, ancestral diets and human evolution. So, yes. you, know, for, for, you know, we're descended from our ancestors, and most of human evolutionary history was during the periods where we were hunter-gatherers, before civilization, before farming started, for you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, we lived as hunter-gatherers. Yes. The yes. question I have for you is, one thing that's very interesting to me here is, there are many different types of hunter-gatherers all over the world, and they have very different diets. Some of them had high-fat, high-protein diets. Some of them had high-carbohydrate diet. But despite all of those differences and that diversity in their diets, none of them really had the level of metabolic and inflammatory and chronic diseases that we do today. And so why is that? Is that, do, do, do they all have something in common to do with this omega-6, omega-3 ratio? Or, or, or why is it that you could have such vastly different diets, some high protein, high fat, some high carb, but you didn't have the chronic diseases in, in those traditional societies that we have so much today? Well, they did have, but not to the extent that um, they exist today or for the last, I would say, 50 to 70 years, particularly in Western cultures. Mm -hmm. um, certainly diet is one of the most important components in terms of health. But don't forget, they were also much more physically active. So you should not ignore the importance of physical activity because it influences metabolism and it influences brain development. Mm. And it's your brain that actually makes you think and makes you select what you eat or what you do. Um, so um, let's go back. About 10,000 years ago is usually the time where we think that people began to um, develop agriculture. And this agricultural development um, it was not really industrial the way it is today. Mm -hmm. um, the hunter-gatherers, no matter where they were, they ate meat that they hunted, but that meat came from animals that they were eating grass. They were not eating grains. And this mm -hmm. is a very important aspect because a grass-fed animal has a balanced omega-6 to omega-3 ratio because grass contains alpha-linolenic acid, which is the parent fatty acid of the omega-3 family. So 
they um, they got a balanced ratio from eating meat. Then the the women who gathered most of their vegetables, vegetables are balanced in omega-6 and omega-3. So it's fruit. They would collect the fruit of the tree. And as agriculture expanded, it really did not become um, um, an agriculture where the omega-6 fatty acids predominated until after the first, and particularly after the Second World War, Mm. where there was... The agricultural development focused on producing animals or increasing the weight of the animal over a short period of time. And in doing so, they used grains rather than grass. So it it was an economic as well as, I would say, a food need following the Second World War to increase the production of um, protein. Uh, in this case, from animals. Um, And definitely in terms of the production of um, oils, uh, it became very common to take all these previously used industrial oils from sunflower and sunflower and change the taste and use them for food production. It was also a way to increase the caloric content of the population, particularly in Europe after the Second World War, because there was a need for more calories. Mm. So there were a number of factors, as well as the technology being there to use it in a way where they felt it was needed in terms of caloric development. But in reality, they never focused on the ingredients and the composition of the diet. And that was a mistake because they should have actually evaluated what happens when you have a tremendous production of um, of products, food products for people that are very high in omega-6 and they're practically deficient in omega-3s. And you ended up with a Western diet that is high in saturated fat, high in sugar, high in fructose corn syrup, high in sodium, and much higher amounts of saturated fat. All of this did not exist in this form the way it has been the last 50 to 70 years. Going back to your question about hunter-gatherers, yes, they had different amounts of protein, and different amounts of carbohydrates, but they did not have the problem of the the pro-inflammatory aspects of the diet that relate specifically to the amount of omega-6 fatty acids and a deficiency of omega-3s. For example, when I um, describe the Greek egg, um, you, you know, I was born in Greece and we have a summer home and I was having coffee with my parents in the afternoon and I saw chickens eating purslane. And purslane is a wild plant that when I was at the NIH, I had studied and it has the highest amount of omega-3 fatty acids. Mm. But I never knew or no one had described that purslane 
is a source of food for the chickens. And my father said to me, of course they need to, the chickens need to eat purslane because if they don't eat purslane, they don't really make eggs. Hmm. There are factors in the purslane. In any event, when I came back to the NIH, I, I brought these eggs from Greece that they were boiled so they can go through customs without any problem. And to my surprise, when I compare the composition of the Greek egg to that of the egg from the Department of Agriculture, the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 in the Greek egg, it was one, balanced, whereas that of the agricultural was about 12 to 1. And mm. then later on, as we did more and more, it averaged up to about 20 to 1. So that it's not only, you know, the protein and carbohydrate, the amounts, it's to look at the ingredients that make up the food supply and understand their metabolism. And I think whenever a, a new product is developed, you have to be certain as to what kind of changes take place. For example, in the ultra-processed foods, they have very little in common from what you find in real food. And the milk that is made out of almonds, almond milk, it produces a lot more CO2 during the process as you go from the almond to the almond milk, which really does not make it a good product for the environment because it produces more CO2. So if you want to think of the diets, you have to think in terms of the evolution, what it was, the changes that have taken place, the importance of the inflammatory components of these diets, the importance of the ratio. And as you continue to understand that, um, you have to find out, you, you want to know, are they sustainable, these diets? What are the effects on the environment? What's the point of producing a food if you're going to increase the production of CO2, which is environmentally unsustainable? So we really need to broaden our thinking and our knowledge. And the data are there. That's why I did the book, mm -hmm. because all this information is described in detail in the book. So it's not just the carbohydrate, and it's just not just the protein. <laughs> So we've got these two different polyunsaturated fatty acids. You've got omega-6 yeah. and omega-3s. The omega-6s tend to be pro-inflammatory in general, and the omega-3s tend to be anti-inflammatory in general. Right. Can, you, can you unpack that a little bit more for us? What makes the omega-6s pro-inflammatory, and what are the omega-3s doing that, that causes them to be anti-inflammatory, and why is our metabolism set up with these two different pathways that are uh, sort of competing or, or in balance with each other? Right. So... First of all, you have the, you to know that the omega-6 and omega-3 are essential fatty acids. The body cannot make them. We must take them from our diet. So that is a very important principle. And they have opposing properties. Once you have them in your body, the omega-6 
develop into substances that are that um, you know the name is prostaglandins and leukotrienes uh, from the omega six and the leukotrienes from the omega six uh, they are pro-inflammatory and um, the prostaglandins from the omega six are pro-thrombotic whereas those from the omega threes their prostaglandins are less thrombotic and the the leukotrienes from the omega-3s are much, much less inflammatory. Therefore, since they have opposing properties inside the cell, they must be in equal amounts in the diet in order in the cell there's, they, a balance is maintained so that the diet is a healthy diet. It's not a pro-inflammatory diet. Now, because both essential fatty acids, the omega-6 and the omega-3, um, are using the same enzymes in their metabolism, what happens if you have tremendous amounts of omega-6 fatty acids, they take over the metabolism, mm. and the omega-3s cannot metabolize. So you, you become much more pro-inflammatory. Now, mm. all these pathways, as we call them, um, they, they are, I would say, orchestrated by enzymes. And they are the same enzymes for the omega-6 and the omega-3s going down to, I would say, prostaglandins and, and leukotrienes. But the most important aspect is that when you change the diet and you end up with 20 times as much omega-6 as omega-3 is, it is a total imbalance throughout human metabolism. And since they use the same enzymes, um, if you have too much omega-6, they don't let the omega-3. The, the enzyme is not there to, to do its job for the omega-3s. Furthermore, there are genetic differences, and this is another very important concept. The enzymes that lead to the metabolism into prostaglandins and leukotrienes um, are, they can vary. There is genetic variation. So there are populations in various parts of the world where they have enzymes that as you go down the metabolism, you end up with much more rapid production of the prostaglandins and leukotrienes. So you not only have the issue of the how much omega-6 you have, how much of the metabolites you produce, but you have individuals with genetic variants that they have a much more rapid metabolism. So a pro-inflammatory diet, a Western diet, in an individual that carries this genetic variance is much more, I would say, harmful than the one that does not have the very rapid type of uh, enzyme, enzymatic metabolism. Hmm. Okay, so, so to make sure I'm following so far, 
omega-6s, omega-3s, the omega-6 fatty acids, which come from vegetable oils and things that we've developed relatively recently. And, and meat, because the meat is grain-fed. Yes, and meats that are fed uh, some of these things that yes. have high omega-6 content. Right. Um, they tend to produce things that have a pro-inflammatory effect. So that includes, you said, molecules known as prostaglandins and leukotrienes. Yes. And the omega-3s um, are slightly different polyunsaturated fatty acids, and they don't have this effect, or they lessen that inflammatory effect. Correct. And, and on top of that, you have individuals with genetic variants that exaggerate mm -hmm. this type of, I would say, inequality. Yeah. So those or people, those people would or be- imbalance. Yeah. Yeah. So, if, so those populations, if they're eating a modern Western diet that's high, it's got a high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio- not only are they going to have a pro-inflammatory effect, it's going to be even greater than other people. Correct. Correct. What populations tend to have those variants more often? Well, um, they're, they're found throughout the populations, but in higher frequency is um, in African-Americans, um, American Indians, um, indigenous populations, and Inuit. And... Um, in, uh, in Europe, within Europe, there is quite um, variation where as much as 50% um, of the population in certain countries can have the pro-inflammatory, where in other countries, uh, it is down to 30%. I see. So, so, so there's it, a... So it varies. It varies with the ethnic groups mm -hmm. and it varies with racial groups. And their locations, yes. I see. And so, you know, this could be one reason I suspect why, um, you know, if you just look at all of the people in your life around you, um, you know, there could be people in your own family or that are your neighbors and yes. they're eating a comparable diet to you, but some of them, you know, might have more chronic disease and it could be related to right. something like this, uh, the metabolic effect. Yes. So the family history, the genetic variation, the Western diet, they all combine into really leading to obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, some forms of cancer, all of which can be modified through diet. That's why in all epidemiologic studies, when they evaluate the environmental factors that affect health, nutrition and diet are number one, no matter where you do the studies. So we have to start thinking very seriously and you've got to educate the population in the selection of foods, number one. And I think you need to work with industry and modify the production of the processed food because today ultra-processed foods pro uh, provide 52 to 54% of calories for the average person. So the ultra-processed foods that really do not have ingredients that come from foods account for a significant amount, over 50%. And when you look at in terms of calories, if you want to count calories, how many calories come from ultra-processed foods, it's 72% in Western yeah. diets. And that's why... There are now many, many studies, epidemiologic studies, that show the higher the intake of ultra-processed foods, 
the higher the obesity, the higher the diabetes, the cardiovascular disease, hypertension, arthritis. Arthritis is an inflammatory disease. Yeah, and I've, I've even seen data that, you know, um, not only do we accumulate fat in our bodies, but the specific composition of that fat, the, the individual fatty acids in our fat cells can be different. And, you know, one thing we haven't talked about yet are specific examples of say omega-6s. So something like linoleic acid. Yes. I've seen data showing that, you know, when they look at studies over the decades that biopsy the fat tissue from people, the linoleic acid, it's going up. So people's fat is not, people are not only getting uh, more fat tissue over time, more obesity, but the fat tissue itself is composed of higher and higher proportions of omega-6 fatty acids. Absolutely. And since you mentioned that, let me add that the omega-6 fatty acids increase the production of the white adipose tissue, which the body stores, does not metabolize whereas the omega-3 fatty acids produce browning of the adipose tissue, which is energy expenditure. Mm. That's why a high omega-6 diet is associated with obesity. Whereas when you balance the ratio, you begin to lose weight mm -hmm. because, we... because the composition of the adipose tissue varies. And are there... So there's this association that I think we've seen in humans. Are there like animal studies? Is there preclinical work that's done cause and effect here? Like if you give animals more omega-6s and you take down their omega-3s, does that cause them to become more obese? Yes, yes. The, the, the model actually was, um, the animal model um, it was developed um, at Mars uh, General by Dr. Alec Leaf, who was at one time the director of Mars General, and a person who worked with him, um, Dr. Kang, um, who it's, it is the omega-6, omega-3 model, which is erodent. And what they have been able to do, they have been able to uh, genetically um, modify the, the, their model so that no matter what they feed, because it's very hard, you know, to do feeding studies, the moment they balance the omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids, you can actually get a different picture of um, the development of sepsis in the animal, the development of infections, whereas when you have the animal that, that um, genetically is um, um, developing more of the metabolites of the omega-6 fatty acids, they are very pro-inflammatory, whereas by using the, the, the model where genetically you have a balanced or a higher amount of omega-3s, you can actually show that in the animal model. It has been shown over and over again in many diseases. And now there are people who are looking specifically at genetic variants in depression, where the omega-3 fatty acids um, appear to be helpful. It's very difficult to treat depression, and there are not that many good drugs. So the people are doing some studies in Taiwan, in fact, Dr. Su, 
on the the role of omega-3 fatty acids in decreasing um, the rate of depression and also the severity of the depression. And there's some very good studies, uh, since you're a neuroscientist, on migraine headaches. Mm. And as you balance the omega-6, omega-3 ratio in the diet, which is not easy to do in Western diet, takes a lot of effort. The migraine, the frequency and the severity of migraine decreases. Hmm. So there what? are animal studies and there are human studies. Interesting. What are yeah. these fatty acids, the omega-6s, the omega-3s, what are they doing in the brain in particular? Oh, they, a number of things. For example, the, um, the omega-3 fatty acids metabolize down to EPA and DHA. And EPA is a lot more important in terms of the inflammatory state of the brain, where the DHA has to do a lot more with the actual metabolism of the brain in terms of the, uh, maintaining neurons and the type of uh, glial cells, which are the cells in the brain, um, so that they metabolically um, control some of the functions of the brain, particularly in the hypothalamus. And most um, recently, um, in terms of um, the appetite, for example, um, if you um, feed adults, in fact, the study was done at Yale, uh, you give them high amounts of sugar and then you look into the brain through x-rays to see what is the metabolism like. And um, when you use uh, sugar, regular cane sugar, um, you don't really see that much activity at the appetite center. But when you use fructose corn syrup, you really see a lot of activity. So a combination then of having um, drinks or foods high in fructose and low in omega-3 fatty acids, which is what currently the diet consists of, it really increases the appetite and it becomes very difficult to stay on a diet or eat less. And, and this is something that people are now focusing more and more um, because many of the drugs that are being used, you know, the GLPs. The, the new so drugs. Far, yeah. Um, they work through the appetite center. And and so I I could see that you could potentiate some of these effects through proper diet. In mm. other words, avoid fructose and balance the omega six, omega three, or give them extra DHA. Mm -hmm. So so having um, an unbalanced omega six, omega three ratio with too much omega six. And consuming fructose in particular, as opposed to other sugars, yes. those are those are both problematic, and they probably exacerbate. Absolutely, they cooperate. Yes. And so, one of the other things that I think is interesting here that you've written about, you know, when we think about hunger and appetite and all of this stuff, you know, the brain is ultimately what's 
controlling how much you eat and what you decide to eat and stuff. One of the interesting things that that you have written about and researched is the relationship between omega-6s and omega-3s to the endogenous cannabinoid system and how that ties into hunger. Yes, this is sort of a new area uh, of research. And, um, you know, the more omega-6 you have, the more of the endocannabinoids you produce. And those endocannabinoids are also pro-inflammatory. And and, and so the, the idea is to begin to control the production of endocannabinoids by having less omega-6. Otherwise, you end up with much higher amounts. And and so the people who are obese, they have high omega-6, they have higher endocannabinoids, they have lower omega-3s, because the the omega-6 and the omega-3 produce different types of endocannabinoids. Mm. Okay? And and so on. The, the, The metabolism from the linoleic acid, which is the parent fatty acid, down to arachidonic acid, and then through the enzymes to prostaglandins and leukotrienes and cannabinoids. And then you have to think of the other side of the omega-3s, alpha-linolenic acid being the parent fatty acid that produces EPA and DHA. And then the most recent studies, which I think are very important, is that um, uh, from EPA and DHA, you have further metabolites that go by the names of um, uh, actually marescens, uh, which are neurotropic factors. And um, they now also, as you go from um, alpha-linolenic acid omega-3s to EPA and DHA to marescens, or to influence the neurotropic factors, and you get that right down on the one hand in terms of the brain metabolism, uh, in terms of the other, in terms of the inflammatory aspects, so that you can cut down on inflammation by giving them some of the um, already formed substances. And this is a a new area of research that I think is expanding a lot more. And and I think once you understand and you isolate the metabolites, and Dr. Sarhan at Harvard has done a lot of work in this area, um, you can actually then know how much you need to give of the metabolites from DHA uh, in order to either cut down the inflammation or for that matter, uh, improve brain metabolism. So this is a very exciting area of research. So you take together the genetics, genetic variation, the evolutionary aspects of diet, and all these metabolic factors, and you can see that we cannot continue the food supply of high amounts of fat, high amounts of omega-6, not enough fruits and vegetables, particularly green leafy vegetables, and and then the enormous production of ultra-processed foods, they're all against health. 
you, you, no way you can actually have a healthy population as long as we continue with the Western diets and the increased production <laughs> of ultra processed foods. So if you want a balanced ratio of omega-6 and omega-3s in our current modern food environment, it sounds like you have to do two things. One, you have to cut down the omega-6s because they're so prevalent in our food supply. Absolutely. And, you have, to get, and you have to ensure that you get enough omega-3s because those are so much less common. So taking those one at a time, you know, if I go to the grocery store today in the United States, what's the best way for me to cut back on my omega-6 intake? Oh, very easy. To begin with, you don't use any of the oils that are high specifically. You should not buy sunflower or safflower or corn oil or cottonseed oil or soybean oil, although some people might tolerate soybean oil because it's only 39% omega-6. And instead, you buy oils that are high in monounsaturates or that are high or they have a balanced ratio of omega-6 and omega-3. So a high monounsaturate oil is olive oil. And olive oil, for example, is 80% monounsaturate. And not only is a healthy oil in terms of the type of fatty acids, but it's also because it comes from the fruit of the olive, the fruit of the olive tree, the fruit, which is the olive, um, you really have high amounts of antioxidants, mm. which makes it a very inflammatory and a healthy oil. Another one is avocado oil is very high in monounsaturates. And then there are a number of oils that are made from, uh, for example, um, filberts, hazelnuts. Uh, in countries around the Black Sea, they don't have olive trees, but they have a lot of hazelnuts. So the most commonly used oil there is um, oil made out of hazelnuts. And then there are oils that are high in omega-3s. For example, flaxseed oil is has a ratio of 1 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3. And um, um, many of the... Um, Oils used in the Far East, um, they also are balanced in omega-6 and omega-3s. Uh, chia oil used in South America is balanced in the omega-6 and omega-3s. So you have a combination of oils that you can use. I usually, when I want to use a, a good um, oil on my salad, I would use extra virgin olive oil. Mm. But if I'm going to cook, I can mm. use regular oil. It's not as expensive and it does not really need to be extra virgin. And this is much cheaper where extra virgin is uh, mm. expensive. Um, the um, You can also combine any of the monounsaturated oils, whether it is from uh, avocado or whether it's from hazelnuts, um, with um, canola oil, which is Canada oil, which is flaxseed, and, and you can combine that half olive oil or half monounsaturated oil 
and half of the um, uh, balanced omega-6, omega-3. So there are combinations that you can use, and people have been using them for a long time. Is That's there... one thing as far as the omega-6, and then eat more fish. And you don't have to buy, you know, the very expensive fish. You, you can buy sardines in a can or herring, and they are very high in EPA and DHA. Salmon is very expensive, you know. Mm. And, and I always remind people that cod does not have any, uh, does not cod. have high amounts of omega 3s because all the omega 3s are in the liver. That's why people, mm. that's why years people do ago, cod they liver had cod oil. liver oil for the vitamin D. That's why they took ah. it, but at the same time, they had, the, they were okay. lucky they had the omega 3s. So certain fish are high on omega 3s, salmon herring sardines um any blue other fish, blue fish blue fish yes and, and is there a difference between like wild caught fish versus farm raised fish yes there's a, definitely a difference um farm raised fish has more saturated fat and less omega-3s than the same fish like salmon in the wild versus salmon that is cultivated uh, in aquaculture, um, but, but still, aquaculture keeps the amounts of omega three in in good amount. So I would say buy it. You should never, uh, um, in other words, just because it's aquaculture uh, and has a little bit less than usual and a little bit more of saturated fat. It's, it's still, still better a good, than nothing. A good source of omega threes. I see. Um, is there any risk to cooking with any of the oils that you mentioned, even like olive oil or avocado oil? Can those fatty acids become oxidized by high temperatures? Should people be concerned about how how high they're heating their food with? Well, it's not so much how uh, you know high what the the temperature uh, that they use to in cooking. As um, it is, if you fry, for example, you shouldn't use the same oil more than twice or three times. Mm. Um, most of the food in the U.S. is fried rather than baked. And unfortunately, they use the same oil over and over again. So you not only um, have uh, oxidized oil, which you don't want to, but you also form trans fatty acids at high heat. Mm. But the more non-saturated are the best in terms of maintaining their structure and not oxidized as easily. Mm -hmm. And also try not to eat too much fried food. How do you feel about um, coconut oil? How do I feel about? Coconut oil. Coconut oil. Well, coconut oil is a vegetable oil, but it's saturated fat. There isn't that much work. I would say if you happen to live in a, in a country where they produce coconut oil, like they do in Southeast Asia, and you have a diet that is consistent with that, is not as bad as using coconut oil in Western diets makes a difference what else you eat with that coconut. Mm -hmm. 
And and palm oil, really, I think it should be avoided except the one that comes directly from the fruit, not the one that comes from the kernel. You know, there is a big concern about that. Mm-hmm. So it's is 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 it is is a fundamental difference here whether the oil is extracted from the fruit of a plant versus the seed of a plant apparently it makes a difference um in um the olive oil the extra virgin is just you press the fruit and there is no temperature or severe pressure and it makes a difference in the palm oil where you get it from the fruit or from the kernel I would not get anything from the kernel. The fruit, I think, is different because in addition to the fatty acid, you always have antioxidants and vitamins and minerals. It's a better source of food. I see. And so how should we think about um, saturated fat in general? Do you think people are eating too much saturated fat? Does this tend to, saturated fat tend to have a pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory effect? Is it more saturated fat? Yeah, saturated fat is pro-inflammatory, and um, most traditional diets are not high in saturated fat. Western diet is very high in saturated fat. I think the diet of Crit, when I calculated, was about eight to ten percent rather than twenty percent as it is here. So you keep your saturated fats as low as you can. But I, for example, for people who like to drink milk, I don't think you need to worry about skimmed milk. You know, you can have whole milk to to drink or to cook with. It's not, it's, it's not that bad as using high amount of um, butter, which is actually a modified milk. In essence, you know, butter comes from dairy, but it's all saturated. Her milk is not all saturated, it has other aspects to it as well. So I personally recommend that uh, if you like butter you, on your toast, you certainly can use that. Um, you can use half butter, half olive oil. If you're going to cook mushrooms or artichokes, it gives you a better flavor. It isn't that much saturated fat. Um, the traditional Greek diet is about ten percent saturated fat. Mm-hmm. And how do you so so certain fish are a good source of omega threes? A lot of people don't like fish, or it's too expensive, or they just don't like the taste, or whatever. How do you feel about fish oil supplements? Because those are very popular. And is there any risk to supplementing uh, with fish oil supplements? Right. Uh, Let me back up a bit. When we did the studies on evolutionary aspects of diet and then on the diet of Crete, we discovered that the omega-3s were present in every meal. So eating fish two, three times a week is not the same as being on a traditional diet um, of Crete. And the only way to get close to the traditional diet of Crete is actually to, to use fish oils and take the capsules every day. And um, the amount that um, you take, uh, I think just to maintain um, an adequate um, uh, amount for metabolism is about a gram a day of EPA and DHA for the average person. 
Um, for those who have a history of heart disease and they're over 50 years of age, uh, even the American Heart Association came around and now they recommend two grams per day. Um, I don't think there are any side effects that would prevent me from recommending fish oil. I take them every day. And but you now in the field takes them as well. Well, my, I mean, my question here is related to, you know, I've heard that a lot of the fish oil supplements um, are no good because they're made with rancid oils. So is that a factor here? And how do you select which well, fish oils to take? Well, that's it. The FDA does not take any responsibility, you know, of evaluating supplements and their exact amounts. So there is no way you can be absolutely certain that you are taking the right fish oil. So how do you decide? I think you either talk to people who know and they have analyzed it, or you can. there are certain companies that are much more reliable than others in terms of the quality. Sooner or later, I think the FDA has to change its approach, but God knows when, where you can do, you, you can examine the composition of the supplement and be uh, stamped and know exactly what it is. But mm -hmm. this does not exist today. So I would say it depends either on your physician or your dietitian who they happen to know what are some of the better ones on the market. Uh, which one do you take? Which one I take? I usually, I, I don't make all fish oils. And I I take the ones that I think are very good and well standardized. But I'm, I don't make any recommendations. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, for those listening, the one that I take for what it's worth is Carlson's and it's wild caught Norwegian cold water salmon derived fish oil that is, you know, verified to contain fresh EPA good. and DHA. Very good. Um, okay. So what about, okay. So now, now I want to talk about um, some other aspects of diet trends that are, that are popular today. Some people are all about um, you know, animal-based foods. Some people are all about plant-based foods, vegan diets, things like that. So not everyone eats fish. So fish is a great source of omega-3s. What are the best? I know, I know that you've mentioned this already, but it's worth just saying it again. What are some of the um, plant-based foods that have higher levels of omega-3s and how do those compare to the fish oil in terms of the, right. the total amount of omega-3s? Right. So um, alpha-linolenic acid, is the parent fatty acid that is found in, um, you know, in earth products rather than aqua. Um, the, um, the amount that is present, it, um, it, it varies. For example, green leafy vegetables all contain um, alpha-linolenic acid. Wild plants like purslane contain higher amounts of alpha-linolenic acid than spinach or lettuce. Um, now, uh, in, uh, for example, at, at Union Square Market in New York City, they sell purslane and there are not a lot of people who grow it. So it's not that you don't find it. Uh, so purslane is a good source of alpha-linolenic acid. 
um, lettuce and spinach have less, but they also have some amount of the alpha lorenic acid. Um, then when you think in terms of uh, the actual oils, perilla oil, which is the oil that they use in the Far East, is um, about almost 70% omega-3. So the Japanese who use perilla, they get um, enough alpha-linolenic acid, which is in the body can be metabolized, but they also eat a lot of fish at the same time. And so a diet like the Japanese, they get the omega-3s from their oils as well as um, their fish. Now, how it compares, um, it's very difficult um, to compare, um, but the amount that um, is considered, um, um, you know, the one could recommend of alpha linoleic acid could, could be about, you know, one, um, 1% of the fatty acids uh, or up to 2%. You don't really need a very high amount. Um, the, the fish oils, in terms of the, of the fish and where um, it comes from, uh, certainly tuna and salmon and bluefish and sardines and herring are the highest amounts that you would use. But if you were to eat um, a diet um, like the, the traditional diets, you would get your alpha-linolenic acid from your green leafy vegetables. You would get it from all your legumes. You know, rice and bean is a very good combination. Beans contain alpha-linolenic acid. Mm. All traditional diets, when you go down to them, you will see that they had alpha-linolenic acid, they had EPA, they had DHA, they had adequate amounts of omega-6 in terms of arachidonic acid. And so, and then the animals um, that were grass-fed, they had the balanced amounts in their, in their meat, the grass-fed. And, and so you have to think of green leafy vegetables. You have to think of legumes as alpha-linolenic acid. You have to think of fish and the various types. And then you have to think of the oils that you're going to use to cook. So you really need to think about all of this in order to have a healthy diet. So are foods with high omega-6 content and a very high omega-6, omega-3 ratio, are they just absent in nature? And that's why no traditional cultures had a skewed omega-6 ratio? Obviously, they were never part of the evolutionary aspects of diet in those environments, never. These are add-ons that the high amounts that we have today of omega-6 is the result of the food industry and food technology that became very prominent after the Second World War. Also, they're easy to produce and they're very cheap, mm -hmm. and it's the economic aspects. When you don't, when you remove all the industrialization out of the food supply, everything else is balanced. Hmm. This is 
a human production and the ultra-processed foods is the worst example of it right now. We didn't have that problem 20 years ago, mm -hmm. not to the degree that exists today. As far as all the other new products that come from plant sources, are, you know, for example, you have chicken nuggets that are not meat. You have fish that is not fish. You have hamburgers that is not meat. I personally do not recommend any of them for two reasons. I know in their production, they increase the CO2, so they're not good for the environment and they are not sustainable diets. And number two, nobody seems to know the ingredients that are there in detail. And when they do, when they evaluate in terms of um, uh, molecular biology methods, we find out that if you take um, a grass-fed uh, hamburger and then you take one that is made out of plant, the composition at the molecular level is very different. Hmm. Does so one I, of them? I don't know what is the function of all these new peptides that are now found in the. I call them fake foods. Oh, so you mean you mean things we've never even seen before? We don't know what they are at all. Yes, they were never part. I'm telling you, when seventy-two percent of calories comes from ultra-processed. Is an enormous amount of calories. And when 54% of the foods are um, ultra-processed is a real problem. People are concerned. And I think there's a reason to be concerned. And I think the lower you are on the scale of food production, the better you're off. Mm -hmm. in terms of the composition. Because remember, we as human beings are more or less, I would say, ordered by our genes. And our genes were programmed through evolution to respond to a number of environmental factors and to a number of ingredients in the food supply. So when you give them um, 54%, the majority of the foods are foreign to the genes. The genes do not know how to adapt. And then you have the genetic variants. That's why I think it's very important to understand what makes a food appropriate for a human being and what scale of evolution you're going to consider. And don't forget, that environment is very important and it's influenced by the production of all these ultra-processed foods. So a diet has to be healthy, balanced, and sustainable to the environment. Hmm. Do we know what the omega-6, omega-3 content is of the new plant-based meat uh, products like Beyond Meat and things like that? I have never seen any data on any of that. So, so it's an un, it's unknown. No, I know that through fermentation, there are all kinds of companies in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. where they're trying to remove the omega six fatty acids from the oils. So already, industry knows that this is a problem, and they're moving in a direction. 
I don't know how long it will take before it reaches the market and all that. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to go through fermentation. You can just avoid and eat the type that's available around. So how important so so obviously you think the omega six omega three ratio is critically important. Uh, do you think that's the most important factor in our diet today in terms of macronutrients? Um, do you think it's equally important or comparably important to things like sugar and fructose intake? Um, what are the other key sort of levers people can pull besides the omega-6, omega-3? Okay, I think the most important is the omega-6, omega-3 because they are essential fatty acids. The body cannot make them. They're totally, the body is entirely dependent on the food supply to have a balanced omega-6, omega-3. Also, we have a lot of information what the imbalance does to the body. Okay? Now, certainly sugar of any sort was never part of the evolutionary aspects of diet. People had honey, but honey was in small amounts. They never had this enormous amount of sugar in in the food you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was never part of that. So you should limit your sugar. You should definitely avoid any fructose or fructose syrup. They, they don't belong into the healthy diet. What about fructose found in fruits? You need fruit. What about whole fruits? Don't they contain fructose? Yes, but they also contain a lot of other factors, and they contain very small amounts of fructose. It's mm. the concentration of pure fructose or, or fructose corn syrup I that see. seems to have this adverse effect on brain and appetite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's just it's just a highly concentrated form of fructose. Yes, yes, I, yeah. I had um, I'll share a story with the audience real quick, and and yes. you can probably comment on this. I um. I'm not diabetic, but I got a heart monitor a couple of years ago just to check my blood sugar and see how it reacted to the foods I was eating. And at that time in my life, I would often at breakfast time, I would eat what I thought was a nice, uh, healthy cereal. You know, it was whole grains, high vitamins, no added sugar, um, you know, as it said on the box. But what I didn't pay attention to is it uh, had in its ingredients, high fructose corn syrup. And my that cereal, that uh, supposedly heart healthy cereal, um, spiked my blood sugar more than anything else I was eating. It was it was not even close. And so and I think it was the high fructose corn syrup, and that, that's what you're saying. It's just that yes. that ingredient in particular is just so concentrated. Yes. 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 No, no, because it also interferes with liver metabolism. You mm. know, um, fructose goes directly to the liver and becomes um, fat, triglycerides. Mm. So it really affects the whole liver metabolism. And if you happen to have uh, a gene that is sensitive, let's say, uh, or is, is not completely normal in terms of your fat metabolism, you end up with very high triglycerides. Mm. Tri- high triglycerides, there is factor for heart disease. Mm-hmm. So the high, tri- tri- high triglyceride levels in your blood coming from the liver doesn't come from fat. It comes from dietary sugar. A lot of it is from fructose. I see. It's everywhere. Yes. What um, can you talk to, to people a little bit about? Um, you know the book you've written um, and where they can find it and things like that. What I have. 
what, what's the title of your book and, and um, oh, okay. where can people find it? So I personally feel that we need to educate the public as much as we can so they can make uh, the right uh, selection because you cannot depend on dietary guidelines that come from various organizations because science is also political. And then you're better off for you to educate yourself. And you can, there are a lot of very good um, papers and reviews and medical literature. But I felt that I had to write a book that emphasizes the political, the scientific, the agricultural, and the health aspects of our food, both at nationally and internationally, because we're now talking in terms about, you know, global health. Nothing is limited in, in um, you know, an area. So the book is called The Healthiest Diet for You, Scientific Aspects, and consists of 13 chapters. And there I discuss the evolutionary aspects of diet, the exercise, composition of the food, the importance of um, aging, what affects aging and whether you can delay aging through through diet. I'm also discussing uh, when I was at the NIH and there were committees on the Hill, particularly the, the committee, the McGovern committee that developed the first dietary guidelines. Actually, what they did, they wanted to tell everybody what to eat. And they call them dietary goals. And at that time, I was the, the chair of the Nutrition Coordinating Committee of the NIH. So they sent the report to us to review it. And I had to write the review of their dietary goals. And I pointed out that you cannot have the same quantitative recommendations for everybody because a dietary goal that depends on the exact amount for everybody is scientifically incorrect. What you can have is you can have guidelines and modify them accordingly based on their family history, their genetics, and the food supply that is available where they live. And it's interesting that that goes back in 1977, and three years ago, NIH developed a program called All of Us, which is do, they're studying genetic variation in the population. And just two years ago, they started the um, uh, personalized nutrition program. It took that long, but at least we stopped it. The NIH is a very important scientific agency, probably the jewel in the crown of all the agencies of the federal government. And we did not hesitate to tell them exactly. Of course, they didn't like it, but they also knew that there was enough scientific evidence of what we said, because we never say anything that didn't was not referenced properly. And so that, I think it was a very um, important uh, part of the job I had and, and what I did. It also sensitized me to how industry functions how Congress functions, um, what happens in terms of the pharmaceutical industry, 
why would you have a food supply when you know it's not consistent with evolution? Hmm. But I guess you needed to have more science out to the public. And I wrote the book because I wanted um, all of this information to be available to anyone who's interested and educated, but also the book should be read um, you know, by high school teachers and taught in high school, I think, uh, medical schools, schools of public health, because it's the only book that brings everything together in terms of the science, politics, evolution, global issues, and unfortunately, what is going on today with the fake foods and ultra process. Based on all of your experience at the NIH and elsewhere, um, how much influence does the food industry have over the construction of things like the dietary guidelines that we get from federal agencies? More so than any other group. So you really have to work with food industry or you have to develop a mechanism where it's regulated a bit more than it is, including, you know, the standardizing the various supplements, because there's no question that there are deficiencies in the diet. And there are people, because of the way they select food, they would be deficient, and they're going to need supplements. But I think all supplements need to be standardized, or at least know exactly what's in it. That is a very important aspect. Um, you know, you briefly mentioned earlier this new class of drugs that's being heavily marketed right now as a as a weight loss drug. Um, uh, Azempic is is the name of one of them. How do you feel about these drugs? How do they work? And do you think they're going to work well? Or do you think they're going to cause any unforeseen problems based on how they work? What yeah. are your thoughts? You're talking the ones that are based on the GLP-1. Yes, yes. Yes, like semaglutide and so forth. Yes. Um, let me tell you, uh, Science Magazine selected as being the most important, um, I would say, event in science, the result of the clinical studies. And they are very impressive because what they do, they work on the appetite center and they decrease the appetite so people do not eat as much and they lose weight. This is a fundamental aspect. They also, the way that they lose is very significant as much as, you know, 15% over a period of uh, a year or a year and a half. When you stop them, part of that weight is regained. So there are two questions. One is, what does it mean? Are you going to have a population that gets an injection once a week to lose weight starting, let's say, in adolescence? Because we have now evidence that children are heavier, adolescents are heavier, and in larger numbers. Is this something that is going... So the question is, is this something that is going... Uh, to have to give it for the rest of the life of the particular individual? Or along the way, we might be able to modify so that you're not going 
to worry about how long you're going to give it to a person who is obese. But I think it's the best thing that ever happened. I think it's a very good re uh, reason to see why it works. Uh, it has to do how much you eat. It controls how much you eat. Now, there are some people who can do that without the drug. That's how they keep their weight. And then don't forget that the omega-3 fatty acids decrease appetite. So I would probably like to see a study where the drug is combined with modification of the diet or other components so that you may not have to worry about side effects because so far the side effects are mostly nausea and the GI tract. That's where they are. But like any new drug, you need to follow it very carefully. But it is the major discovery and the clinical studies that have been published so far. They show that the side effect is minimal, but for how long you're going to give it. And what does that mean, both in terms of the economics, because it takes about, what is it, $1,000 a month? <laughs> a thousand bucks a month. Yeah. Wow. So, so a thousand bucks a month. So the, yeah. pri the price is uh, an issue. I see. So On the other hand, you have to figure out if we're going to keep somebody thin and they're not going to get uh, heart disease or diabetes, then you save on the healthcare uh, delivery system, which means then the government has to cut down the price. I mean, these are things to consider. Do you think there's any risk that people taking that drug will simply eat less of the diet they're already eating? In other words, if someone has uh, an imbalanced omega-6, omega-3 ratio that's pro-inflammatory, perhaps they're eating less of it, but they're still eating that imbalanced diet. And do you think that could be a problem? Well, I think it's very important to make sure you have a healthy diet, a balanced diet, with adequate vitamins and minerals and, and fiber, plus the drug to, to help the, the brain or the appetite center eat less. Um, so they're losing about 15% body weight. Um, no, 15, 1.5. Yes, 15, 1.5%. 1.5%, yeah, you know. I've sometimes. heard... I've heard that they're losing uh, a mixture of both fat and muscle. Is that true? And is that concerning at yes. all? Yes. Every time you lose weight, you, you lose both. Every time you lose weight. Um, so we've, we've discussed a lot today. We talked a lot about the omega-6, omega-3 ratio. We talked about fructose. Uh, we talked about a lot of detail related to those aspects of diet. Is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't discuss or anything you want to reiterate for people that you think is, is really important for them to just go home with? Well, I, I think um, your questions were very good and it covered a lot of the things that I think the public ought to know because one of, of the reasons for having the podcast or for writing the book is to make sure to stimulate people to begin to have, expand their knowledge about the food supply and how to select food and how to use food and physical activity to maintain health. So um, I was going to say that in the back of the book, there is a chapter where it tells you 
what to shop, what to avoid, which foods to buy, and the difference, for example, you know, people like to snack, and Americans more so than any other uh, group of people. And I was pointing out in, in the book, and I think it's important to consider, yeah, in the winter, for example, I like to have as a snack uh, figs, these are dry figs, and you stuff them with either almonds, and then you increase the protein intake of the snack, or I put walnuts and I increase the omega-3 part of the snack, which is very different from having a chocolate chip cookie made with fructose. And, and that's what I really want to finish with, pointing out that you really, once you have the knowledge, it becomes easier to make changes and at the same time to select the most appropriate food for you. Because diet is the most important environmental factor in maintaining health. No question about that. All right. So it sounds like two big things that you recommend to people are do your best to figure out how to get a balanced omega-6, omega-3 ratio as close to that as you can, and basically to avoid fructose and high fructose corn syrup and similar things as much as possible. And ultra-processed foods. Try to eat food as close to its origin as possible. Yes. Okay. One more time. Uh, tell everyone, what's the name of your book and who you are? Yeah, I have a copy of the book. You want me to show the book? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So this is a, the cover of the book. And it. Th this, is, of course, is a Greek column, the Greek food guide or a column. Can you hold it up, a little, bit, what you, hold it up what, a little bit more? What you should be. Yeah, there you go. Can you see it? At the top, it all tells you, you know, what sort of eats on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, over a week, and then the type of foods that you should eat plenty of, and the various activities, uh, exercise be an important aspect, and knowing your family history and genetics. Just eating one or two foods is not going to make a difference. You need to bring everything together. And I think... Um, and then in the back, it just describes some of the things I have done. I should also tell you that the book um, is uh, available online, and it is available to download free. And so far, there have been thousands of books that have, that have been downloaded. Also, what I showed you is the hardcover of the book that people can buy. It. But because I wanted people to expand their knowledge in terms of a healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, physical activity, and avoid chronic diseases, um, I felt that the only way to reach more people is to make it freely available to download. And so far, it's just done exceptionally well. I'm very, very pleased with the interest of people in the book. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that. Translated. I will... It's been translated into Greek, and now we're considering a Chinese translation. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the episode description so people can find it very easily. Um, once again, thank you for your time. Uh, this was fascinating. Um, I enjoyed reading your stuff, and I uh, really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to do the podcast with you. Thank you very much.